Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, continuing in our series through this wonderful kingdom book, Acts chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one, to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to not just intellectually understand it, but to love it, and Father, to live it. I pray that your grace would be upon us, both in my preaching and our hearing and responding. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. probably more giving that is done during the Christmas season than just about any other time of year. Certainly the charities bank on that. Uh, I can't believe how much junk mail that I've been having to throw away recently. When I was uh, kicked out of the office by the music team on Wednesday about 4.30, I went up with a stack of mail like this and it was kind of folding over. I was having a hard time carrying it upstairs and as I was sorting through it, it seemed like it was somewhere between 75 and 80% of that mail was solicitations, and it seems like every one of those solicitations had one emergency or another that uh, needed to be met. And uh, I was kind of humored by some of the differences there. 9-11 is long gone, but it was so successful in bringing out the bucks that uh, Republicans continue to use that to do fundraising. Hurricane Katrina drew lots of money because of the attacks of nature upon an unsuspecting uh, public. Republicans get a lot of money out of um, people by talking about how the Democrats are on the attack and they're taking away our freedoms. And the Democrats do the same thing with the Republicans. And the third party advocates, they do the same thing with the Republicans and the Democrats. And then there's uh, Christian social... Uh, action committees that uh, talk about one attack or another, ACLU, you know, they're taking away our freedoms, here's this case and that case, and I received a letter from the ACLU, and it was a really funny letter, they were saying, man, these dangerous Christians, they're taking away our liberties, and we need your money if we're going to survive. Now, when you see things actually getting into the comic strips, you know that a real trend is on the way, and uh, Glenn gave me a comic strip. It's my favorite comic strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. And in here, Calvin's just really excitedly saying to Hobbes, I'm writing a fundraising letter. The secret to getting donations is to depict everyone who disagrees with you as the enemy. Okay? <laughs> then you explain how they're systematically working to destroy everything that you hold dear. It's a war of values. Rational discussion is hopeless. Compromise is unthinkable. Our only hope is well-funded antagonism. Okay, so we keep your money to keep up. We need your money to keep up the fight. Hobbes says, how cynically unconstructive. And he says, enmity sells. <laughs> enmity sells. Well, obviously it doesn't sell hugely well because the American public still doesn't do a ton of, of giving. They're just uh, moving from one charity to another charity and they're giving apparently. Uh, and I think part of the problem is that guilt manipulation only works for a short time. We have had numerous disasters over the last uh, few years that people have been able to use to kind of pull on people's heartstrings in terms of giving. And yet, despite that, last week's statistics that were posted on, on the web uh, by Christianity Today show that percentage-wise American Protestant giving has not increased it's still at an all-time low. 
The average Protestant gives 2.6% of his income. That's down from 3.3% during the Great Depression. Now, happily, evangelicals are part of the group that has raised that figure up to 2.6% because they uh, give 400%, four times more than other churchgoers do. But even when you look at that segment, they don't give anywhere near a tithe in their giving. Um, In... Uh, the polls that were uh, cited, it indicated that 12% of evangelicals have not given a single dollar in the last year. I I was just blown away. They haven't given anything in the last year. One large study done by Ronsville uh, estimated that the church, if they began to tithe, give 10% of their income to the church, an additional $139 billion would be available in America for ministry. That's an incredible figure. That's one of the things I appreciate about this church is that uh, everyone here tithes. Some give above and beyond the uh, tithe. But I want to talk today about a kind of giving that goes beyond uh, the ordinarily. Uh, You rarely find this in wealthy countries. In fact, uh, you will find it most commonly in poor countries, uh, places like amongst the poverty-stricken Dalits of India or amongst the the poverty-stricken peasants in in, uh, China. There was um, in China one uh, older gentleman who was uh, plowing with a rather crude instrument. There was an ox on this side of the yoke, and his teenage son was pushing on the yoke on the other side. And when uh, one of the guys went up to ask him, you know, what was going on? What was that for? He was very excitedly saying, well, my son was so moved by the needs that were in the church that he begged me and said, could we sell that ox? I'll pull the plow for you. Now, he was not doing this out of guilt, This guy was so excited to be able to give to the Lord the only thing that he had to give, and it was his energies, his labor. And there was something about his giving that was, um, what's it called, where it just makes everybody else uh, want to give? Infectious, yes. And there was something about his giving that showed forth the grace of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. Now, unfortunately, there are two kinds of counterfeits of kingdom giving that rob Christians of this joy and I think tear the heart out of kingdom giving. Now, sometimes people think that these substitutes are the real thing. This is the ideal that we should be striving for and uh, what incredible sacrifice, what ideals that they hold up for Christianity. These two counterfeits are asceticism, A-S-C-E-T, I-C-I-S-M, asceticism and socialism, and socialism in its more um, uh, extreme would be a good word, would be communism. And we're going to be seeing those two are complete counterfeits of the real thing and uh, do not even remotely uh, resemble what uh, we're talking about in this passage. Now, there are not nearly as many ascetics in America as there are socialists, but I have run across enough ascetics who do not feel comfortable enjoying the good things of life that I thought, man, I need to spend at least a little bit of time in addressing this particular counterfeit. One Christian that I met at uh, Covenant College uh, insisted that it was sinful to, to buy a new car, drive a new car off of the lot, that you really ought to buy an older car, preferably something that's a decade or uh, uh, more uh, old. And I I said, really? Now, why is that? I was wondering, if it's sinful to buy a new car, why is it not sinful to have an old car? Why not just get rid of your car and walk? You know, and he thought it was sinful to eat meat. And I asked him, why in the world did he think that? He says, there's so many people in other countries who are not able to eat meat. Now, here was a person who was driven by guilt and could not enjoy the, the, the good things of life that God had poured out in his life. And he did it because he wanted to become more holy. And so I want to settle once and for all the mistaken notion that asceticism will make you more holy. Colossians 2, 20 through 23, Paul describes the ascetic philosophy of avoiding beautiful things, tasty things, and comfortable things. You know, the touch not, taste not, handle not, 
uh, philosophy of life. And he said that even though they have, quote, an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He said that asceticism has zero value in holiness. And in fact, the Christian is actually robbed if he follows asceticism and denies himself in this way. Uh, my dictionary defined asceticism as the religious doctrine that one can reach a higher spiritual state by rigorous self-denial and uh, self-discipline. And it deals with the whole thing of feeling guilt over the nice things of life. For example, if you were to offer an ascetic a you know, beautiful ice cream sundae, they might feel guilty over eating it. Now, they might not. The different ascetics have different levels at which they feel guilt. Some people only feel guilty, you know, if they get something that's really, really expensive. But um, there is that guilt that drives them in what they are doing. Ascetics will appeal to this passage in Acts chapter 4, and they will say that it clearly teaches that we need to sell, get rid of anything above bare subsistence living... And then we're going to be pleasing to the Lord. And so I want to analyze this passage and show why ascetics are robbing themselves with their asceticism. My first point is that asceticism treats material things as bad. They say God is interested in giving us spiritual blessings, not physical blessings. You know what? No matter how hard they try, they cannot get away from the physical because our bodies are very physical. And even though they don't eat fancy foods and stuff, the food that they eat is very physical. And as shabby as their home may be, their home is a very physical thing that is a blessing uh, from, uh, from God. And if their theory were correct, they ought to get rid of all of those things. But they say, well, so long as you don't enjoy it, it's not sinful, okay? <laughs> but I want you to notice in verse 32, it was tangible things that they had in common, and they possessed the things. They weren't trying to get rid of the things. They distributed very physical things like money and food in verse 35. They laid these physical things at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles rejoiced in this, said, yeah, this is a great gift to give before God. It's not a thing to be respect, uh, rejected or despised. And you can't have it both ways. If it is sinful, you can't have it at all. But the ascetics do want to eat something. They do want to have a place to sleep in. They do want to have a vehicle to ride in. And so one corrective verse to this is 3 John 2. It's God's wish that we may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. And so spiritual, yes, that is very, very important. But the physical blessings were important to the Lord as well. And this passage is not against that at all. Second, Asceticism fails to share with others. Now, this is a point that you could very easily overlook, but it's an important one. Because they feel such guilt over having things, they end up having nothing which they could share with the poor. In fact, they end up being a liability themselves because they have no margin in their lives. And so they, at times, during emergencies, become dependent on other people helping them. But if everyone was an ascetic think where we would be. We'd have nothing left over for emergencies to be helping one another out with. And in this passage, in complete contrast, you do find some people who had enough uh, finances that it was more than what they needed. They were able to share with those who did not have to distribute. And so even though asceticism is self-sacrificing in one sense, in another sense it's really selfish because they're only thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the people that they could help, that they could share with. They're thinking, oh, in order to be holy, I've got to get rid of all of these things. They're all self-preoccupied. Thirdly, asceticism requires no grace. Now, the reason I can say this is because there are many religions in the world uh, that are filled with ascetics. And some of these ascetics are far better ascetics than American ascetics, okay? Uh, there are pagans who are ascetics. In fact, there are wealthy people who have shown asceticism. I should have probably uh, given an example or two, but I didn't think to pull it out, didn't have time to pull it out this week. 
Uh, but there have been wealthy people who just feel guilty about spending anything. They live in shabby clothes and shabby houses, shabby cars. It's just an amazing thing. And so it doesn't take any grace to be an ascetic. Uh, it may sometimes take a little bit of uh, strange thinking to be one, but it doesn't take any grace. And yet here, verse uh, 32 talks about them being believers. Verse 33, it says, great grace was upon them all. And the kind of giving that we're going to be talking about today, believe me, the kind of giving we're talking about today takes great grace from the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be seeing why. A third problem with asceticism is that it operates from the wrong motives. Almost all ascetics are motivated by guilt. Like I said, if you offered them a banana split, they might feel a little bit guilty eating that banana split. And if they didn't feel guilty over that, there would be something. They would be. And yet there is not a trace of guilt as a motivation in this passage. None. Fifth, ascetics tend to be isolationists. In fact, in the early church, uh, many would leave society altogether and join a monastery. There were others who felt, man, that's even too self-indulgent. And so they would go off and they would be hermits in the desert living all by themselves and some of them thought, you know, if we just bail out of society, we won't be tempted with all of the things that are out there. And yet what happened is they took the temptations with them in their mind, and they, they, they had those uh, in, in the desert. And yet here, we don't see these people bailing out of the city. We don't see them bailing out of the church. Instead, they are radically committed to one another. They belong in the church together. And it says that they were of one heart and one soul in verse 32. A sixth problem with asceticism is that it abandons the responsibility to be stewards of God's creation. Now think about Adam and Eve. They were given a whole planet. That's a lot of material things. And God expected them to do something with this. He didn't expect them to take dominion over the whole planet because, man, it'd take a long time to walk around this world, wouldn't it? But he expected them to multiply what they had to do the best that they could to expand their sphere of dominion influence. In contrast, ascetic ma ascetics make their focus as owning as little as possible and being stewards of as little as possible. Now, the problem is they can't completely succeed in that because they have to have some material things that they're, uh, that they're owning and yet they don't even see that as a stewardship trust because their focus is on getting, uh, getting away from it. And yet verse 32 says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. When it came to a need, they were quite ready to give up what they had because they had already given it all to God. Uh, ascetics were par excellence stewards of all they owned, whereas ultimately ascetics are not good stewards. Lastly, asceticism often leads a person to be so impoverished that he cannot help others. And I hinted at that, that earlier. But in contrast, we see that there are Christians in this passage who had discretionary uh, assets uh, saved up. Some have houses and lands in this passage, and they have houses and lands in later passages in Acts. In other words, they had more than they needed and so when emergencies arose, they were able to use some of that. Now, ascetics, uh, they object and they say, no, Kaiser, you got it all wrong. Read verse 34. It's so clear there. It says, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. They said, this passage makes it clear. Everything they had, they got rid of. They sold it. Well, actually... Look up the Greek and you'll see that is not the case at all because the Greek indicates it's an ongoing tense. They sold a property here, they sold another property here, later on they sold an, It's an ongoing tense. Otherwise, commentators point out you've got a complete contradiction because in chapter 5, which is right after this, there's people who have more properties, right? And they've been people who have been Christians for quite a while. Look up Acts chapter 12, verse 12. You see Mary, who was in this chapter, she's got this magnificent house. It's a huge house that can accommodate a large crowd. There's other people who have, church, uh, have houses 
and church meets in their house. They met from house to house. In fact, one of the things that uh, you'll discover if you do a little bit of research on this is that some of the apostles had enough assets that were generating income that they were able to fund their own missionary journeys. Okay? So, uh, ascetics are not even in a position to be able to enjoy and joyfully give as these Christians did. Now, what about communism? Communism does not fare any better. I have a commentary, unfortunately. Actually, I've got a number of unfortunate commentaries. But uh, I've got a commentary that calls this Christian socialism. Nave's Topical Bible lists this under the heading, Communism. Uh, There are liberation theologians, other Marxists, who use this passage to try to prove that communism is a biblical concept. Uh, In chapter 2, when we dealt with that, I gave some hints that uh, chapter 2 does not support communism, but here I want to really dig into this a little bit more deeply. And uh, as we look at what the church is not, I think you're going to appreciate uh, more fully what, what incredible grace there was in this beautiful passage. And this is a beautiful passage. I hope by the end of today, you're going to love this passage. It'll be a passage that drives you in your kingdom giving. Okay, first... Both communism and socialism force people to share. Is that not right? What happens if you don't pay your taxes? (laughs) You uh, get fined, and if you don't pay those taxes plus the fines, eventually you're going to get thrown uh, into jail. I I love the IRS statements uh, on some of their publications that these are voluntary contributions. Uh, Representative Charles Rangel, who was on the House Ways and Means Committee, actually chaired it, he, he's got to have a sense of humor, because here's what he said about that uh, thing on the, on the uh, IRS forums. He says, what makes the voluntary system work is fear of sanctions and penalties. <laughs> okay? If sanctions and penalties automatically apply if you don't voluntarily contribute your taxes, they're not very voluntary, are they? And that's why Judge Learned Hand said taxes are forced extractions, not voluntary contributions. Now, in in contrast, there's no penalty here if you don't contribute your funds. Now, immediately in your mind, an objection may come up. Now, wait a minute, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Were they not struck down for failing to pay back taxes? And the answer is no, they were not. Look at Acts chapter 5. Now, verse 3, we'll, we'll start with verse 3 because this is the one that people might take out of context and say, of course, they were punished for failing to, you know, give voluntary contributions. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? But keep reading, keep reading. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, Ananias was judged for lying, not for failing to contribute. The money was his to keep, to give away, to use any way he pleased prior to having given it to God. But you know what? Once he promised this to God... If he promised $100 to God and he only gave $50, then he's not only lying, he is stealing from God because this has been given to God. He's now taking it back. You see, a promise is a contract, and he had broken his contract. So there was uh, uh, lying, there was stealing. <clears throat> Second, communism and socialism uses a tax to pay for needs, whereas these people use private charity. You cannot equate the two. Third, Communism and socialism make the state the vehicle for charity, whereas in chapter 4 it was the church, and even there it was private charity through the church. The church helped to organize the ministry, but the church did not tax the people. Now, I should say that there is a church tax, and it's the tithe. And that was something that was, you know, the Bible says, no, you have to do it, it's law. This is above and beyond that, and we're going to be seeing how it's above and beyond. It's what's called the free will offering. There was nothing free will about the tithe. God said, no, that's just a a moral responsibility. This is a free will offering. 
So they were voluntary contributions, and if you fail to see this, you're going to fail to see one facet of what makes this such a joyful thing that we're going to be looking at near the end of this lesson. Fourth, in both communism and socialism, this distribution of wealth to help the poor is treated not just for an emergency, it's treated as a permanent solution, isn't it? Well, in Acts, this is seen as dealing with an emergency, and there's another emergency that comes up later in the book of Acts, but it's not seen as a permanent solution to the problem. Fifth, communism believes that the state should own all property and that all private property should be abolished. In fact, this is absolutely at the core of communism. Let me quote from Karl Marx, uh, who said that this is at the heart of communism. Quote, the theory of communism may be summed up in one sentence, abolish all private property. Well, the sentence I read from Acts chapter 5, verse 4 shows that Peter believed in private property. That statement is the antithesis of communism. Notice that the church did not confiscate property. It did not sell property. It was the Christians who did so. And you cannot sell, like verse 34 talks about, if you don't own what you're selling, and you cannot give away, as verses 34 through 37 talk about, if you don't own what you are giving away. Peter makes it quite clear that prior to Ananias's pledge of that money, it was his to do with as he pleased. But once he pledged it, it belonged to God, and to keep it back at that point was theft. And so you're going to find all throughout the book of Acts, it assumes private property. In fact, the Ten Commandments assume private property. So this strikes at the very heart of communism. Point six, in communism, the state doesn't liquidate property in order to give it to others. Now, I wish they would. But uh, they don't. They're trying to get more and more in socialism. and communism, they already own everything, don't they? In, in, in China and other communist uh, uh, places. They want it all. They keep the property. Whereas here, the saints, one private saint is selling it to another private person, whether it's a pagan or some other saint, we don't know. But one private person is selling it to another private person, which is what? It's capitalism. It's not communism at all. Quite different. Seven. Communism and socialism both seek to provide varying degrees of cradle-to-grave services that go way beyond the basic needs. For example, they provide retirement, health care, child care services, legal services, farming subsidies, business bailouts, uh, student loans. Now we got the new prescription card. This passage does not even remotely look like the kept people of America or the kept people of China, or other places like that. Um, if you look at verse 35, you'll see a little phrase there that shows what was distributed. It was to each as anyone had need. Need, right? It's basic needs, not the envious wants of our society that are being talked about. And I've already hinted at point eight that Christianity sought to equalize such things as food. And by the way, the word equalize is no problem. Second Corinthians uses it, and uh, it's for food that he was using it. He takes the image of manna, and in the Old Testament, remember when the manna was uh, being collected by the people? Nobody could collect up enough for the next day. It didn't matter how hard you tried. It would spoil. So everybody had an equal amount, unless, of course, you were too lazy to go out and collect the manna then tough, you know, you're going to have to uh, learn that you have to collect. But everyone had an equality, and that's where Paul uses the word, that we may have an equality amongst the people. But um, he's not talking at all about an equality of salaries or an equality of property or an equality of any other economic aspect of Christianity. In fact, the New Testament assumes there will be inequalities, it even mandates inequalities. For example, the elders are supposed to get a double salary in, uh, what is it, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, one of those Timothys. Uh, so it even mandates inequalities. In Matthew 26, verse 11, Jesus defended the use of the extremely expensive perfume that Mary poured out, saying, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. 
For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Those disciples were acting like socialists. They're saying, oh, what a waste. You know, we should have sold this so we could give money to the poor. And Jesus disagreed, and he had no problem with the economic disparities that were apparent in that passage. There were obviously poor people in the church when Mary, in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, has this rather expansive house in the city. Later in the epistles, Paul speaks of the rich and the poor in the church. And so where communism tries to equalize or level out all the economic distinctions, at least in theory they do, in practice some are more equal than others, but in theory they try to level those out. In the church, there are inequalities of economics, but there is an equality that they are looking for in terms of the basics for survival, food, uh, clothing, and things of that nature. There is quite a difference between the two. I am much more likely to sell a stereo or something that I have if I see a brother who, and I, I don't have uh, discretionary money to give, I see a brother who's got a need, doesn't have food. Boy, am I going to be peeved if I have sacrificed and this person's using it to pay for ESPN, you know? I'm going to be very peeved. Um, and you see that on welfare all the time where people have nothing, and yet you go in, they've got big screen TV, ESPN, they've got call waiting, they've got all the services that are out there. That's biblically not right. Very quickly, number nine, communism and socialism are a form of theft, whereas this was a form of giving. And if you don't think it's theft, read Bastiat's book, The Law. What a great... That was written around the time of the uh, French Revolution, I believe. Was that not right, Rodney? 1848. Eight, oh, so it was after. 1848. Uh, what a great book, though. Uh, verse 32 makes it clear... Oh. Yes. Verse 32 makes it clear that they truly possessed the things being given. Verses 34 through 35 indicate that the individuals sold things, they brought those things, they laid those things at the apostles' feet. Nothing is being taken from one individual and given to another individual or you're going to serve jail time. It is given, not taken. Ten, communism and socialism are notorious for waste. Most of the so-called tax contributions that go to, uh, supposedly, in welfare, go to help the poor, uh, do not make it to the poor. Let me just give you one example. Only 10 cents of every dollar earmarked for Indian reservations ever makes it to the Indian reservation. 90% of tax dollars that are earmarked for the Indian reservations are eaten up in a massive bureaucracy known as the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's just the nature of socialism. Now, in contrast, in verses 34 through 35, it makes clear that everything that was sold and contributed for needs actually went to meet those needs. It was efficient distribution of money, and point 11 tells us why. Christianity makes local distribution of charity to be the ideal. Why? Because you're much closer to the people. You know who's deserving and who is not deserving. There's accountability. Uh, it, it's much better to have it local, whereas in communism and socialism, what's the ideal? It's centralized civil government that distributes uh, the uh, income. And so you see on almost every level uh, that, that, that uh, what is going on here in Acts chapter 4 is different than communism on the one hand or asceticism on the other. And so having cleared away what it is not, I want to end by showing what an amazing picture of the biblical ideal we have in this passage. I'm going to give us seven more evidences that the church was experiencing something far more beautiful than anything that the world could come up with. First of all, it was a powerful evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 is a direct result of verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32 is not an evidence that we've got some Machiavellian pastors there that are able to extract money out of the people skillfully. No, this is not an evidence, you know, of people who are great fundraisers. 
It is the spontaneous expression of hearts that are filled with the Spirit, are in tune with His leading. Now, this giving was not evidence of people who are trying to become more holy through asceticism. Instead, it flowed from a people who already felt God's favor upon them. It was because they felt God's favor. They were so freed up and so joyful in their giving. And when we are shaken in extraordinary ways, we're going to find times when we give in extraordinary ways, just like the boy in China that I uh, mentioned there who was willing to sell, have his dad sell that cow so that he could pull the plow and they would be able to joyfully give. Now, I don't think any amount of guilt could have motivated that boy and that father to give that sacrificially. Uh, I don't think that that would have uh, worked. But it took the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, your giving is a big measure of where your heart is. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, verse 29. And if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it will be reflected in the very mundane things of life, even things like giving. Now, the main reason I've given this first point, again, is I'm trying to show this is not something ordinary that humans will describe exactly what it is in the last point, but this is something that the Spirit produces within people. And by the way, again, it's not something mandated. In the Old Testament, there were things mandated with regard to charity. There was the tithe, there was the gleaning laws, there were a number of things mandated. And if you want to just stay at the, at the level of, you know, legalistic, yep, I'm following the laws of God, yeah, you can do that. But this goes way beyond that. This is such a joyful uh, ministry of God from within us. I've got a brother who gives and gives and gives sacrificially, And the Lord just seems to pour back into his life uh, even more. Uh, When we put God first, then God puts us first. And so point C says it's a powerful proof that, uh, well, 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 that's getting ahead of us. Let's see here. How far have I gotten up to, Glenn? I've totally lost. I'm at B. Did I just finish B? Okay. Point C, it's a powerful proof that they were indeed stewards. Look at the second half of verse 32. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. Now, I want you to turn with me to Mark 10, and I'll show you why this was the case. Now, here is a passage where the rich young ruler thought that he had kept God's laws perfectly from his youth. Man, what a mixed-up guy. (laughs) I have kept all of these from my youth, he says. And so Jesus throws him a curveball to show that he is a sinner. And uh, he really has not kept everything the way that he thought he had kept it. And if you take a look at verse 22, he's already told him that he needs to give up all of his riches, sell it, give it to the poor, come and follow him. Look at verse 22. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the problem was not with his possessions, but the fact that he had made an idol out of his possessions, if it came to a choice between following Jesus and following his possessions, yes, it would make him sad to have to make that choice, but if push comes to shove, he's going to follow his possessions rather than following after Jesus. It had become an idol in his life, and Jesus knew it, and he was out to destroy that idol. He was trusting in riches. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 23. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. <laughs> and you can see why, given the teaching uh, of the Pharisees. They were absolutely astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible. What's impossible? For anybody to be saved, right? Who then can be saved? With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to them, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, 
Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Christ was saying, we need to give up everything that we have and everything that we are to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives it back to us. We now manage it as a stewardship trust. We don't own it as if it belongs to us. We manage it as a stewardship trust. And so at any time, God can call for our wealth, all of it, any of it. At any time, God can prompt us very clearly and say, I want you to give your car to that needy family. And then you've got a choice. I'm going to make Peter's choice or I'm going to make the rich young ruler's choice. And now it's not a matter of outgiving God. Uh, you can never outgive God. He delights in giving us far, far more than uh, we give uh, to him. But this kind of a steward's heart is itself an evidence of their prior experience of gospel grace. When Jesus had said in Mark 10, it was impossible you know, for rich people to, to be giving in this way, what he said was impossible there. In this chapter, every believer is doing. Verse 33 says it was great grace. Acts 4, verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now Luke is not changing the subject. You know, all of a sudden arbitrarily bringing something up totally different than what's in the verse before and what's the verse following. No, what he is saying is this relates to what I'm talking about in giving that the gospel that the apostles were preaching was so powerful, it was making genuine conversions of people. These people were so transformed that every one of them was doing this kind of behavior. It was a powerful grace that was upon them. As uh, Mark 10 said, with God, all things are possible for people to be selling. I mean, think about that. That's a tough thing. Sell your house and give it away. Selling lands. Uh, that's a tough thing. He says, man, this is an evidence of powerful grace. And again, the main thing I'm wanting to see right now is that it's an evidence of the supernatural character of this giving. It flows from the filling of the Spirit. It's a powerful testimony to the church's love. It shows forth hearts that have been given all to God. They're stewards' hearts. And it shows for the presence of great grace. Point E, this shows a visible demonstration of how body life works within the church. Verse 34, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed each as anyone had need. And Joseph's, <clears throat> no, one verse earlier, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. One African commentary that I own on Acts says, The unconverted cannot understand such self-sacrificing generosity. Their cheap imitation of this is forced sharing, that is, communism. I thought that was a, a great comment. He said, The unconverted cannot understand such self-sacrificing generosity. Their cheap imitation of this is forced sharing, that is, communism. Now, even though 1 Timothy indicates that sharing is inseparable from the Christian life, and even though 2 Corinthians 8 urges Christians to enter into the joy of this sharing, it is not something that can be forced as the world forces so-called generosity. Paul says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Giving is a test of how real our sense of fellowship with Christ and our sense of fellowship with others within the body is. Now, think of the body illustration. When your toe hurts, you nurse it, right? It hurts. The whole body feels it. When you bump your head, you rub your head, and you try not to bump it again, every part of the body feels and protects and cares for each other. And he says that's the way it should be within the church. Now, we can't make it happen, but it is a test to the degree to which we have experienced the grace of the Lord, the infilling of the, uh, uh, of the Lord's Spirit. 
within our lives uh, to the degree that we have experienced all of the points we've been talking about in the last three um, uh, uh, sermons. By the way, laying um, money at the apostles' feet, uh, that not only symbolized their submission to authority, but it showed how important mercy ministries was to the church. Uh, as we go through the book of Acts, I'll pick out arbitrarily some of those and really highlight some of the mercy ministries that you see in the book of Acts. It was part and parcel of everything that the church did. There cannot be, there should not be a church that does not have mercy ministries. Point F, Luke gives Barnabas as an example of a person who excelled in this area of giving. Okay, beginning at verse 36, and Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the uh, country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas stood out as a man who had kingdom giving in his blood. And I think God raises up examples like that in almost every generation where he moves people's hearts to be an example of how everyone's giving can be. The president of the McClellan Foundation, Hugh McClellan Jr., uh, he was content to tithe from his income for many years, but then he was moved along with his wife, Nancy. Uh, he was moved to set their goals to give a minimum of 70% of their personal income every year. Now, in a speech he gave this year, he said, for us, that's not sacrificial in any way. Any middle-class Christian giving 10% to his church is more sacrificial than we are. Nevertheless, giving that 70% broke the power of money in our lives. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting statement. He said, it broke the power of money in our lives. Now, most people don't think money has any power in their lives. Yeah, any time. I could, I, I could give it away. But, you know, the real test comes when Christ calls you to make a major sacrifice and all of a sudden a test is raised up within you and you think, oh, man, can I possibly do that? It's a choice between trusting God and trusting money. Now, once you get past that, it becomes easier and easier, and it becomes more and more joyful to give. Now, you may wonder, why did Luke use a rich man like Barnabas as an example of wonderful giving? Why didn't he use a poor person like I started this story with, you know, that young boy in, uh, in China? And I think the reason is that it is far more difficult to rich, for rich people to give money than it is for poor people. In fact, the richer you become, the more difficult uh, it becomes. It's, it's a, just an amazing phenomenon. Remember, Christ himself said how difficult it is for these rich people to really have stewards' hearts, how difficult it is for them. It was precisely because the rich young ruler was trusting in riches that Christ sought to destroy his idol. King about tithing a lot. I'm definitely listening and growing as a Christian, but Bruce, I make a ton of money. I can't possibly tithe. That would be a huge chunk of cash. And Bruce asked him, well, why don't we pray about that? And so the man, he started praying loudly that the Lord would give him guidance and, and wisdom on this. And then it was Bruce's turn to pray. And, and Bruce said, God, help my dear brother here earn lots less money this coming year so that he can afford to tithe. <laughs> And, you know, many people have testified to this. It becomes harder and harder to give the more we have accumulated. We think, when I get rich, then I'll start giving. Let me tell you, if you're not giving now when you are poor, you're not going to be able to give when you are rich. And so I think it really is an incredibly awesome testimony when a Colgate gives 50% of his income every year, or when a Hugh McClellan gives 70% of his income. What an incredible testimony to God's grace that really is. It was an incredible testimony that Barnabas was able to sacrifice in this way. Now remember that we saw all of this flows from our fellowship with the Spirit, and we've already seen that the Spirit ushers us into the fellowship of suffering, into the fellowship of prayer, and last week we saw that the prayer itself hints at eight other areas in which we share in each other's lives. This is one more. It is the fellowship of giving. 
Notice the last phrase in verse 32. But they had all things in common. This is point G. <clears throat> Some people have assumed that having all things in common means that everybody uh, <clears throat> gave absolutely every dime of their wealth into a common pot and they shared equally from that common pot. It was the earliest example of communalism. And several commentaries have said that's absolutely impossible because it contradicts the, uh, the very immediate context of private ownership that we looked at in the first uh, part of the sermon. It contradicts chapter 5 where Peter explicitly says they did not own things in common in that way. And it also contradicts later parts of Acts where it shows that private property was an a, a ordinary function of Christianity that they owned homes, they had wealthy Christians. The word common is much more significant than that. The word common means fellowship. It's, look it up in the Greek, it's koina. Koina. Koina is an abbreviation of koinonia. You familiar with that word? Koinonia means fellowship. And so you could translate this uh, this way. <clears throat> they had all things in fellowship. Now, what does that mean? That all things in fellowship. Well, if you think about all of the other things we've talked about in connection with fellowship, I think it'll give you an idea. What does it mean to fellowship in Christ's sufferings? Okay, when we suffer, Christ suffers. When Christ suffers, we suffer. Matthew 25 says that when we give even a cup of cold water to even one of the least of these in, in his name, that, that's a reference to little children, when we do that, he says, we are giving water to Jesus because Jesus is in fellowship with them. And this is where giving gets really, really exciting. Who would not count it to be an incredible privilege if you were living at the time that Christ was here on earth to be able to have Jesus over for lunch? Man, that would be so cool. Well, you know what? He says, you can do that every day by having other believers over for lunch because when you are serving them, you are indeed having Jesus over for lunch. You are serving the Lord Jesus because of his fellowship with them. Who would not count it an incredible privilege to be able to help finance one of Jesus' missionary trips? Well, you can do that by contributing to missionary organizations, contributing to the church. <clears throat> we are not just in fellowship with Jesus, though. We are in fellowship with each other because of Jesus, which means that when our family contributes finances to um, Peter Hammond and Frontline Fellowship, Jesus treats me as if I was there in Sudan, even though my back couldn't take it, climbing those mountains with a backpack on my back, and I'm there, and I'm preaching to these Sudanese and I'm laying up treasures in heaven because God treats me as being a part of his sacrificial ministry. Uh, to me, this just warms uh, my heart. It's so incredible. And if you think that that is not possible, that you're investing in Dominion Institute or in some uh, other kinds of a thing, enables you to share fully in our ministry. Let me read you two verses from Matthew 10, 41 through 42. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall, re shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Well, all of a sudden... Kingdom giving takes on a whole new excitement that no pagan could ever possibly have. Why do Kathy and I love entertaining people? Why do we love treating people as if it was Jesus in our home? <clears throat> it's because we know Jesus is there. He is receiving that entertainment from us. And furthermore, by blessing you people over at our home, hey, we're in a very easy way able to share in your rewards that you're laying up in heaven. We're able to share in the good things that God is receiving from your hands. I mean, do you think we actually engage in all of this ministry out of a pure spirit of uh, altruism? No, man, we're laying up treasures, right? And um, God has given to us a hunger to bless missionaries and pastors because we realize 
What we are doing in this is we are sharing with Christ. Christ is sharing with us. We're sharing with others. They're sharing with us. There is a sharing that goes all the way around, and we feel robbed when we want to give 200 bucks, you know, to a, a traveling missionary who's coming through, or we want to give 200 bucks to a, a person who's really poverty-stricken, they say, oh, no, 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 we couldn't possibly take that. We feel robbed because if we had been able to give that 200 bucks, we would have been giving it to the Lord Jesus, and we would have been laying up treasures in heaven from the things that those people have been engaged in. It makes giving take on a whole new dimension. Okay, so now the secret's out. And uh, you know why it is that we enjoy ministry, even when it is painful and even when it is sacrificial, because every one of those sacrifices and pains that we are going through helps us to share in the rewards that God is laying up in your lives and in the lives of others. Just think of it as a spiritual profit-sharing plan, okay? Um, I cannot imagine women who have been more engaged sacrificially in hospitality than my wife Kathy and uh, Julie Nolte. But take heart. When you come alongside of them, you can share in their rewards when you're helping them out in hospitality, like Audrey Collin and Cheryl Polsky and others uh, do when they come to the home. And you're not robbing her of any rewards. What you are doing instead is because there is a genuine koinonia, there is a fellowship of giving, by your giving of your labor in her life, you are actually laying up treasures in heaven uh, because of her ministry. I cannot think of a group of people in this church that works harder than the music team uh, does in this church. On Wednesdays, they come to set up the equipment, and then they practice, and then they take down the equipment. And then on Sunday morning, they come at 7.30. They set up equipment, set up the chairs, make sure everything's all ready to go, and then they practice, and then they uh, lead in the worship service, and then they have to take down. And I tell you, they don't get a whole lot of praise or acclaim. Everybody's chatting with themselves, and just don't, they don't even see a thing. And these guys are thinking, that's great. We're laying up treasures in heaven. And, you know, the people who are a part of that, who are helping them, are able to share in the blessing of what they are offering up. And, you know, you wives like uh, Kathy Krutz, who has had to sacrifice. It is a big sacrifice. They have to pull your children together and everything when Jeff's here, not helping out on Sunday mornings. I mean, which of you people, you know, would appreciate that? I mean, it's a tough thing. And yet, when she says, Lord, I give this as a gift to you. Now, if it's a complainingly thing done, then you don't get any rewards, right? But if you say, Lord, I delight in the fact that I can share in this music team, even though I am not there, there are rewards. You know, when some of you children have been over the past months and years helping out Dr. Bear as he sets up the track table, what you are doing, here's a busy man who has donated so much of his time to the church, and he doesn't... He doesn't ask for praise. He doesn't ask for recognition. He's probably embarrassed that I'm even mentioning his name right now. But what you are doing is you're sharing in the rewards that he is laying up. And I could go on. I don't need to. But the point is that um, the sacrifices of communism and asceticism look like empty, worthless garbage compared to what kingdom giving causes us to be ushered into. Giving out of guilt? Oh, man, don't do that. That just robs you of your treasures. Giving just because somebody's got a high Machiavellian score and he's able to squeeze the money out of you, that takes all the fun out of it. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul calls us not to give grudgingly, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word for cheerful there is hilaron, from which we get the, Greek, uh, the English word hilarious. Hilaron, Strong says it applies to gaiety, cheerfulness, hilarity. Nothing short of joyful, eager giving glorifies God because nothing short of eager, joyful giving to the cause of Christ shows forth and manifests that fellowship of the Spirit, that fellowship with Christ, that fellowship with other believers as we give. It's a true sharing in the ministry of others. Now perhaps you can understand that when you go on a missions trip to Ethiopia or to India or some other place where you've got really poverty-stricken people and you go to a house and they want to serve you some food 
and it may be the last morsels of food that they have, and you're feeling so guilty because here you are wealthy and they're feeding you. If you say no to them, they feel crestfallen. They feel absolutely robbed because they want to share. They want to share in the things of your life. God has so captured their hearts that it gives them joy to give. I don't know why it is that the Lord gives that kind of a spirit so much to poor people and rich people miss out on that, miss out on that. And so we rob them. Next time God prompts you by his Holy Spirit, he prompts you to engage in hospitality, uh, to give to the poor, to give to a, a missions organization, to just quietly behind the scenes without any fanfare, to give to a needy brother. Don't resist. Don't resist his gentle nudge. Embrace it wholeheartedly. And you know what you're going to begin to experience? You're going to experience exactly what Hugh McClellan said he experienced in his life. The power of money will be broken in your life. The power of things will be broken in your life. The power of having a perfect house will be broken in your life. The things that you're trying to protect and hold on to and you're trusting in and you just don't want messed up, it will be broken in your life. And you're going to start entering more and more into the joy of cheerful giving. I want every man, woman, and child in this congregation to begin to have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the heart of Barnabas, who was free of the love of money and found such joy in giving. What an awesome thing. Not motivated by guilt, but say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. May there be rivers of living water that flow out from me. He overflowed with joy. In fact, that's one of the reasons why he was called son of consolation or son of encouragement. He was such an encouragement to other people. Father, may this happen. May this happen in our lives. Give to us not only the fellowships that we have looked at in the last three sermons, but give to us, Lord, the fellowship of giving. May we not be like Ananias and Sapphira who gave and it counted as nothing because they gave from the wrong spirit. Fill us, Lord. Cleanse us. Take away from our hearts the things that rob us of the joy of kingdom giving. And may we be a people through whom rivers of living water flow in blessing into the lives of others. Father, bless us. Bless us with your spirit. Bless us with this heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.